for AZPM. I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, learn about a new exhibit at the Tucson Desert Art Museum called Citizen Slash Enemy, Japanese Incarceration Camps. Find out about the 10th anniversary of a Japanese garden in Tucson that's a dream come true for a local resident originally from Belgium. And I'll talk with the creator and director of the documentary Users about the tenuous connection that exists between humanity, technology, and nature. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Eighty-one years ago, by presidential decree, as many as 120,000 people of Japanese descent who were living on American soil were forced into prison camps where they were held for the duration of World War II. The ramifications of this racist policy are now being explored in an exhibition at the Tucson Desert Art Museum. It's called Citizen Slash Enemy, Japanese Incarceration Camps. Here to provide some context on this history is Brett Asaki, an assistant professor of East Asian Studies at the University of Arizona. February 19th is what we call the Day of Remembrance, which is the anniversary of Executive Order 9066, issued by uh, FDR, which authorized the creation of the internment camps. What was the thinking that was going on at that point in time that made Japanese Americans seem like such a threat? There is a quick and long answer. Uh, I'll give the most quick answer, which is that uh, at the time, uh, just a few months earlier in December, was the attack on Pearl Harbor. uh, And the United States was figuring out ways to respond to this. Obviously, in the military, we decided to ramp up and engage uh, Japan in the Western Front, the Pacific Front. The thing is, is like all uh, occurrences with uh, U.S. engagements, in addition to things we do abroad, they also have ramifications domestically. Uh, at that time, they decided to, uh, American public more broadly, decided to um, take some of their anxiety out on Japanese Americans themselves, uh, many of which were born in the United States, uh, knew nothing to Japan, had no connection to Japan. But because of public hysteria, um, instead of just a few removed, Um, from uh, just military zones, they decided to make the entire West Coast a military zone uh, and authorize the internment of over 110,000 Japanese Americans. Can you speak to the devastation that that had on the lives of these people who were working, living, contributing to American society and suddenly were betrayed by their nation? Well, there's a couple important dynamics to understand the magnitude of this. Uh, First of all, there were laws in that era which forbade any non-citizen from owning property. And the only people who could not become citizens in that era were Asians, uh, which meant that Japanese Americans did not own any property, which meant that they were only leasing or renting their like houses or apartments. Uh, And that meant if you were going to be sent to prison, which is basically what these camps were, uh, you would not be able to pay rent which meant you would be losing all of your homes and uh, includes basically all of your possessions. You, ha- you had no idea how long the war was going to last, where you were going. Um, 
and uh, you couldn't necessarily store your things, so you'd have to sell off all your possessions. If you had a family pet, you'd have to find a new home for them. And uh, if you were a, a kid in elementary school, you would be ripped out of your school and be put into these prisons. Uh, if you're a college student, you'd be ripped out of college. And also, if you were serving the military, you'd be ripped out of your service and put into the prisons also. So to confirm, there were no exceptions made for age, state of health, or positions held, like you mentioned, military service. That's correct. So even people who served in World War I were not allowed to, uh, to escape these, uh, these prisons. What were the conditions generally like? I can imagine they would vary from place to place, but in terms of our state, what were the conditions like for people who were interned? Well, the quick answer is... Uh, the United States didn't have that much time between the issuance of the executive order in February 19th to the time when they're actually in the prisons in roughly April, June. Uh, so you can imagine housing that many people uh, in different places, uh, but uh, creating housing for them. And of course, the American public is not excited about providing luxury <laughs> housing or items uh, for folks, uh, which meant that if you were, say, uh, shipped to Wyoming, um, uh, in uh, the spring, it's fine. But once the winter hits, Wyoming's uh, winters are bad. If you think Arizona winters are bad, uh, Wyoming winters are worse. Same with Idaho winters, they're very bad. The California winters you used to think are not so bad, but in fact, those were in the mountains of California. Um, so they were also very harsh. Uh, in fact, one of the famous books about the internment camp experience is called Through Harsh Winters which kind of conveys to you how haphazard the housing was set up for the, uh, these, these prisoners uh, and how little preparation the people had themselves to prepare for wherever they're going. And also they didn't know they were go where they were going to go. So, um, you know, if they knew they were going to be shipped off to Wyoming, they probably would have brought their winter coat. But uh, there was no information about that. Brett, the scar that this left across Japanese-American culture and these families, I mean, even if you think about a small child, we all know what it was like to be outcast in one way or another as a child. To come back to school, how long? A year later? Two years later? How long were most uh, Japanese Americans kept in these camps? Well, the camps in total were about four years, um, which meant that that would be your entire high school, like my uh, grandmother experienced. Or if you're in elementary school, that's your all your primary years, you know, right? And you come back marked as an, a permanent outsider, as a criminal. Well, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I just want to add uh, one more element of, of the loss there. Um, every age group, if you subtract four years plus any uh, house and uh, livelihood um, and savings, pretty much, um, would put you in a different traumatic situation, whatever that is. So we just talked about the young folks. One of my grandfathers was in his 20s, so he was just starting out his career. And then uh, coming back to, like you said, a place where he would never even be able to enter that career because he was marked as, uh, as, as a former enemy, right? Fast forward to someone uh, thinking of myself in my 40s with kids, you know, how do you manage your kids throughout all that experience? How do you assure them that things are going to be all right when you can't guarantee that? What can you tell us about the exhibit at the Tucson Desert Art Museum and how it attempts to depict this tragedy? Well, it does a few things uh, very nicely. It does a nice balance between a very personal side with like the diaries and the notes uh, and relating it here right to Tucson with images from Tucson. 
um, but also uh, thinking more broadly with the larger political landscape. Uh, it would be easy to ask question, why did this occur? Well, there's more broader information with newspaper clippings and things, uh, government documents to show that kind of broader effect. Uh, in addition, there are uh, little clips of uh, a couple documentaries which provide a more interactive kind of uh, experience as well. When the Day of Remembrance arrives this coming weekend, what thoughts do you have about that? Is there anything that you and your family are doing to observe? I wrote a book in 2016 called Enfolding Silence, um, and it is about this idea of the scar that you're talking about. Um, what happens for Japanese Americans, and I look at artists in particular, um, is that uh, they work with these experiences and mold and fold together different aspects of silence, whether it be the, uh, the traumatic types of silences and the experiences of social silences, uh, but also um, the strategic avoidance of being seen and being feared, and also, you know, uh, acts of art. Uh, types of art, religious arts, uh, religious silences like meditation, all those get brought together into these very rich ways of remembering uh, those experiences while also processing and, um, and teaching those lessons onto the next generation. So I've looked at those uh, in depth and, and uh, as a Japanese American on a day like uh, February 19th, uh, thinking of the Executive Order 9066, uh, it's not only what happened then, uh, but what are the lessons we've learned how have we grown, um, and what things do we need to pass on to the next generation? The Tucson Desert Art Museum and the Southern Arizona Japanese Cultural Coalition will observe the National Day of Remembrance on Saturday, February 18th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. My guest, Assistant Professor Brett Asaki, and retired UA professor Minoru Yanagahashi will both speak. There's a link to more information about this citizen-slash-enemy Japanese incarceration camps exhibition on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. The Japanese word for dream is yume, and a dream came true for a Tucson resident when she opened Yume Japanese Gardens in this city. Now, ten years later, the nonprofit organization continues to grow, although there's much more to this destination than meets the eye. Next, Tony Paniagua will tell us more in an interview with the founder, Patricia DeRyder. Patricia DeRyder, you founded Yume Japanese Gardens of Tucson 10 years ago. Congratulations on this major anniversary. Thank you, and thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to have you here. What led you to open up a Japanese garden in Tucson? Some people are still surprised that we have one in this city. Yes. Well, I had moved to Tucson, and uh, since I moved to this country, having been born in Belgium and then moved to Japan for 15 years, I always wanted to create something to express the Japanese culture and bring in the, uh, the peacefulness and the healing that the culture provides. It started as a place of healing. That was your first intention, but of course it has expanded over the years. Can you tell us about that? It started at, as a garden, yes, to, to offer a place of healing with uh, some therapeutic programs. But very quickly, I realized that it was very difficult to get to be known as a place like that. And so it was open to the general public. And uh, we opened also a museum and we started having events. And uh, we are presenting the Japanese culture in a very broad way at this stage. What are some of the things about the Japanese culture that you would like to share with residents here in Arizona and visitors from other states? 
first we have to educate people as to what a Japanese garden is. And our garden especially is different from all the other Japanese gardens. There are um, a place where you sit as if you're in, inside the, your own home in Japan and you open the sliding door and you look at your gardens. So it's very different from all the other Japanese gardens in the States where you basically go around in a big park. It brings you quietness and uh, it's another way of viewing a garden. But then we also like to introduce the material culture I was an archaeologist in a former life, and uh, I like to show what the Japanese people had, you know, their kimonos, their potteries, everything else that they have in their daily life. So we have a small museum now, and um, we have also the largest collection of Japanese flower arrangement, Ikebana vases. Uh, in the United States, because we do festivals about uh, twice a year, our flower arrangement throughout the gardens and in the buildings. This has been a labor of love. We've been talking uh, prior to this interview about how it is basically a, quote, one-person operation, uh, specifically Patricia DeRider. Can you tell us about your past 10 years and what you've learned along the way? Well, I'm not alone anymore. <laughs> I did it alone for many, many years, but I realized that you cannot create a garden by yourself. You cannot sustain it. And um, we need a lot of volunteers. And in addition to that, because we have all those programs and those events, I've needed help and I've had to hire somebody for the front desk, somebody to help me with the events, somebody to help me with the uh, exhibits in the museum that we change at least once a year, if not more. The way we sustain ourselves is only through people walking in, people becoming members, and then people who participate to the events. One of the challenges that you have here in Tucson is actually the weather as well, right? Because the summers can be so extreme and the winter can be pretty cool. Can you talk to us about the plants and what happens to them throughout the year? I believe that the garden must have been replanted at least five times since we started because a Japanese garden requires certain plants. And uh, here, either it's too cold like lately and we have to cover them every night and you have to have somebody coming <laughs> early and uh, cover all that, uh, or it's too hot. And so during the summer months, we do have to close from May through October. So half of the year we're closed, which also means half of the year is no revenues. <laughs> and at the end of the summer, usually we have at least 60 plants that need to be replanted or severely pruned <laughs> because of the weather. Patricia, you've been at this for 10 years, obviously. It's a lot of work. What is your long-term goal or vision for this garden? Let's say you decide to retire or do something else. Retiring is not in the books for the moment. I, I started the gardens when I was 60, and now I reached the number 70, and I'm hoping that the garden can continue without me. That's my dearest hope. And uh, I have now a wonderful board that is helping me looking to seeing what's going to happen for the next uh, decade. But my biggest hope is that really Tucson wakes up and realizes we're here and comes and visit and support the gardens. 
when I started, as you know, by the name, Dream, it was a dream. And I just started because I wanted to offer something nice. But very quickly, I was made aware that that was a business and I had to behave like a business woman. And um, personally, I do not like that. <laughs> because you have insurance, you have a lot of other things that need to be considered, right? Exactly. You have to pay employees. You have to pay the water, the everything else. So you have to generate a, a large amount of income at the end and uh, it's extremely difficult to st sustain we don't have an ad budget uh, therefore the only way we we can do it is through either community calendars in the various papers or through interviews like this <laughs> or through facebook of course which has been our life savior when we sell tickets for uh, events and things like that Patricia DeRyder, thank you very much for joining us. She is the founder of Yume Japanese Gardens of Tucson, located on Alvernon, just south of Grant Road. Thank you. Currently, the gardens are open each week from Thursday to Sunday. The Spring Ikebana Festival is February 23rd through March 5th. Information is available at yumegardens.org. Next week, the independent Mexican film series Cinema Tucson will present a special screening of the 2021 documentary film Users. Director Natalia Almada will be in attendance to speak and do an audience Q&A session. The film uses a barrage of astonishing cinematography with hypnotic music by the Kronos Quartet to explore the rise of technology in our lives and the isolation that many feel as a result of separation from the natural world. Almada says she was raised biculturally, binationally, and bilingually between the U.S. and Mexico, and the concept of that in-between space is something that inspires much of her work. Users was the first film she shot in the United States, and it earned her the Documentary Director Award at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. Well, I was born in Mexico and kind of raised biculturally, bilingually, binationally, between U.S. and Mexico. Most of the work I have done has actually been in Mexico until Users, which is the first film that I've shot in the United States. Um, but I think that this kind of like dual way of existing in the world <laughs> is definitely one of the things that most influences my work. I had the pleasure of watching Users um, day before yesterday, and I was immediately pulled in by the avant-garde nature of the beginning of the film. How would you tell our listeners what Users is about in a nutshell? I also teach documentary films, so I love thinking about how these kind of labels and terms shape the way we go into a film. And one of the things people have said about Users that I like about a lot is that it's a science fiction documentary. <laughs> and I like that positioning because it both challenges our ideas of documentary as this kind of truth, real informative genre. And then by introducing this idea of the fantasy of the future of how we think of the things we don't know that will come. And users in many ways is that exploration of what is our intimate relationship to technology and how does it change these kind of fundamental ideas of who we are and the future? What, what will it be like? 
So it's told through the eyes, mostly of a mother, myself, thinking, you know, what happens if my children love the machines more than they love me? It's just a, an imaginary question, right? But one that I think in so many ways we live with today, thinking about, you know, what's going to happen if, you know, we all start driving self-driving cars and the machines with all the AI get smarter than we are. And what about all these new bots that can be creative and what's going to, who's going to make art and who's going to tell stories and this question about who we are in relation to technology and, and how technology changes the way we see ourselves is kind of at the heart of um, users. And I think something really beautiful that you're able to do with your film, Natalia, is to create the space for the viewer to think. Many films don't want the viewer to think. And I'm generally talking about, like, say, an action movie. It doesn't want you to yeah. take time to yeah. think about anything while you're watching. Yeah. But users gives the viewer time to sit and think about the ramifications of these questions. Even though you're using sometimes sparse visual elements and sometimes sparse sound, you still create an environment. Yeah, there are two things I'll, I'll speak to from what you said. One is this idea of the audience being involved. And it is definitely, I think of it as a conversation. And in a conversation, I want to make space for the viewer's own thoughts, for their memories, for their associations, for their ideas to dialogue with the film. And so it intentionally has those spaces built into it so that the viewer can really bring themselves as a kind of active participant into the conversation of the film. As we were making the film, what we thought a lot about was this idea of the body. How do you make an embodied cinema? And it's, it's not a new term, but when talking about technology, which is so often not of the body, right? How do we make a film that makes you feel it in your body when you're in the space? And so we tried to work with an image that really is kind of not just epic, but also disorients you a lot. The edit is made to go from spaces where you don't know if you're looking at a wide landscape or at a detail that is tiny and but somehow looks like a landscape. So are you above something below it? Are you underwater? Are you in the air? Is it a you know, through a microscope. And so this question of like, where are you positioned? What is the scale and the kind of disorienting quality that going between those spaces can evoke as a physical disorientation? And then we worked with the Kronos Quartet, which was amazing, and a yeah. wonderful flute player named Claire Chase. And um, my, my partner, Dave Surf did the sound design, always thinking about this idea of kind of how do we put you in the space of the film? How do we, we create a world, like a sonic world that you're inhabiting. Natalia, what do you want to say about the nature of the narration in your film? Who is the narrator and who is she speaking to? Oh, narration is such a difficult element in making a film and one that is definitely hard for me in particular. But the narrator um, is me in a lot of ways, a mother. First shot in the film is of this baby who's in a smart crib. This is a crib that you press a button and the crib lulls kind of moves and makes sound to lull your baby to sleep, and it works incredibly well. That's my baby, three months old, and that's when we started shooting. So I had a three-month-old and, like, a two-year-old. So it's really this kind of new mother. I think anyone who's a new parent has had that feeling of being inadequate and not knowing how to soothe their child <laughs> and wanting, like, this machine to do it perfectly and yet being afraid that, well, what if the machine does do it perfectly and does do it better than me? And the bond between my child and the machine is stronger than the bond between my child and myself. There's two voices. There's my actual voice, 
And then we created a synthetic double of my voice. You know, now it exists as a, as a voice that you can type something, a phrase, anything, and it will speak in my voice. And it's crazily similar to my voice. <laughs> like, yeah. I can't tell the difference. Um, <laughs> you can't tell the difference. So that synthetic mother is kind of the way I thought about it was when I'm gone and my children hear that, that voice and they can manipulate that voice, manipulate what she says, how are they going to feel? Right? Are they going to feel like it's their mother and have an emotional connection to that machine? Or will they always know it's a machine? And that question to me is a profound question that doesn't really have an answer. Like, we don't know how they're going to feel. But the question itself reveals something so deeply fundamental about our relationship to technology and its potential to replace us. Replace us, you know, it's the synthetic and the real, and it's me today <laughs> and as filmmaker and mother, and then this kind of synthetic voice that speaks from a future. I mean, it's, pre it's in the present, but it can speak from the future as well. One of the shorthands to describe the process of art, Natalia, used to be to say that it's the purpose of art to hold a mirror up to nature. And in your film, I realized that technology is now holding that mirror to nature. The question I ask myself a lot is how will it change the way our children think of nature in the future? And in some ways, what will their tolerance be for the imperfection of nature? Mm -hmm. So if you think of something like the, the perfect wave, that you know, the artificial wave that people go surf, if you learn to surf in that space, what will it feel like to like wait out there in the ocean waiting to see what wave might come, right? The kind of that impatience with waiting, the impatience with the imperfect, the impatience with the unpredictable, it gets increased, that impatience by technology, right? That people become unable to sit in the discomfort of not knowing. That's when I think about those kind of where technology replaces nature. What it's actually replacing is the space of kind of uncertainty or not having control. It becomes a controllable nature. And that is kind of crazy, right? Because the thing we know about nature is that we cannot actually control it. Right? We don't control when the storm comes. We don't control the tsunami. We don't control the earthquake. We can try to predict it, but we don't control it. There's a sequence in your film where you show a boy playing a video game and he's talking mm -hmm. to another player through his headset and we're in the position of the screen itself. So we're looking directly in this child's face while he's playing the game. And what I saw was rather than a childlike face and you explore child's faces in many interesting ways in your film, but I recognized this kind of twitchy screen face as if we have evolved a new form of body language, not for communicating to another person, but rather for managing the screens in front of us. Oh, I think it's a, it's a very um, astute observation and reflection on that image, because I think, you know, my brother, who has kids who are now, you know, teenagers in their late teens, he once told me, you know, when my kids are on screens for a long time, they're like monsters afterwards because they have been in a, such an activated space, but their body is completely still. And that disconnect between the body and the mind, the activity, like how hyperactive it is through those video games and the images going so fast, especially with young people who have so much energy in their bodies, right? Being sedentary 
causes a kind of explosion afterwards. And I, I feel like what, what I see in that kid is that it's like, it's like the body being constrained. And so all like all that energy is twitching in the face, you know, is the only part of the body that's moving. Yeah. The eyes constantly darting and focusing on, you know, yeah. details that may only yeah. be centimeters apart on the screen, but the eye still makes that jump, you know, jump, jump, yep. jump, jump, jump. The idea of exploring liminal spaces is something that's, you know, very current right now online. Liminal spaces are an idea that have really caught my attention, and your film explores that. The places where people are really not meant to go, to linger in these spaces that we're only supposed to see, whether it's inside a machine or it's a row of houses outside a train window. How important was it for you to portray liminal spaces in your film, and, and how does that concept resonate with you? It's very much at the heart of what I'm working on now, <laughs> coming out of users, uh, and also relates back to where I began our conversation is talking about that kind of border space when you're between countries, between cultures, or it's often described as a kind of liminal space. So I think it interests me, and it interests me in film particularly, because it's a space that's hard to see and be in. And so how can you use film, thinking of it first for a moment visually, how can you use it to see something we can't see, right? And then how do you place the viewer in that space that we're not comfortable being in, the in-between space? So I've been thinking about latent images in photography, for example, which is in, you know, when we used to shoot film footage, you would expose your negative in the camera and then you'd have it processed and developed that time in between is the latent image. It's the, the negative has been exposed, but it hasn't been developed. And I think our culture today that is so immediate, so in the now, makes that space very intolerable. And to know that something is, but I can't touch it, I can't see it, I can't change it, I can't send it to somebody, is very frustrating. Yet most big moments in life, like waiting to have a child or approaching your death, right, require that we be in this liminal space. And so losing the practice of it is actually a huge loss for society, right, because we forget or we don't know how to live in that in-betweenness that is so challenging. And we need to learn how to do it through practice, and our society is not giving us the space to practice it anymore. Cinema Tucson will present Natalia Almada and her film Users at the Fox Tucson Theater on Wednesday, February 22nd. More information is on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.